it was a, it was a simple exercise, but it had profound effect on my life. I've got to turn the clock back all the way to the fall of 1980. I was at Green Lake, Wisconsin. Uh, my senior class from Moody Bible Institute was on senior retreat. And uh, it, it was a great time. We were fairly close as a class, so there was lots of times of conversation and laughter. There was activities. And, and it was a time in my life when I had big plans. Big plans were in store. Uh, I had a friend uh, on campus there that had made it his hobby to study and to educate other young men at the Moody Bible Institute on how to choose an engagement ring. You see, we tongue-in-cheek said it was Moody Bridal Institute, ring by spring or your money back. Uh, so, uh, he, so I had plans for, for Jonathan to take me out and to educate me. Uh, Charlene had graduated a year and a half earlier, so I was, uh, you know, I, I had big plans. I had already started the process of applying to Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. And I had already started to make plans to put together a demo tape so that I could send it, that we used tapes back then, so that I could send it to WRSW in Warsaw, Indiana, the Lake City Station, and uh, hopefully get a job to uh, put myself through seminary. I had big plans. So when the speaker, who we had brought in for that time, asked us to take five small slips of paper and to write on each slip of paper five of our top priorities, it really wasn't hard for me. I had it down. And I don't remember what his talk was all about. I don't remember the nuances of it. But I remember that I knew what was coming. You see, after a while as he was talking, he said, take one of those priorities and wad it up and throw it on the floor. A little while later, he said, okay, you've probably got four in your hands. Take another one up, wad it up, and throw it on the floor. A little while later, he said, take another priority and wad it up and throw it on the floor. Now we only had two slips of paper in our hands. And mine read, Charlene and God. Now, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I knew what was coming. What are your priorities? What really matters to you? We have all kinds of ways to express it, right? We say things like, if you were on a deserted island, what are three things that you would have to have with you? What are your three non-negotiables? Or if your house caught on fire, what's the first thing you would grab as you raced out the door? Fortunately, my, my club, golf clubs are in the garage and it's detached. So, you know, what, what would you grab? And sometimes it's really easy to say or write down our priorities, but when it comes to our actions, does what we do reflect what we say is important? Take your Bibles, whatever form you have them, and I would invite you to turn to 
the Old Testament book of Haggai. Now, if you need a little help finding that, find Matthew. Most everybody knows the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel, and then go backwards two books. Go past Malachi, go past Zechariah, and there you're going to find the short little prophecy of Haggai. It's only two chapters. Now, we're in the middle of this series. Actually, we're coming to the end of this whole series, going through these prophets that are called the minor prophets, called that by someone years ago because they're shorter than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And, and so up to this point in our study of the minor prophets, it's all been about God reminding the people, whether they were in the northern part of the kingdom, the, the kingdom called Israel, or the southern part called Judah, God constantly reminded them through the prophets that you have not turned away from your wicked ways, you have not repented, you have not reformed, and I am coming. And I am going to come in the form of other entities, and you will be led off into captivity. Well, there is a change in Haggai. Zechariah and Malachi, because these three prophesy after the people have been gone for 70 years. You want a technical word? Post-exilic. How you like that? Post-exile. And, and these last three prophets prophesy after that 70 years of captivity. And God uh, used one of the emperors, his name was Cyrus, and Cyrus made a decree and he sent the people back from the Persian Empire. And you know, you would think, wouldn't you? You would think that those going back would determine that no matter what, I am going to obey God no matter what. I am going to pursue Him in heartfelt worship. I am going to be devoted to Him. And they really started out really good. The book of Ezra is a parallel book to the book that we're going to talk about today. And, and uh, once they got back to the land, and they came back to the land with letters, official letters from Cyrus, giving them permission to buy um, wood, especially cedars. Uh, Lebanon was known as the place that had the beautiful cedar trees, and they would use that to rebuild the temple. They had letters, they had authority. And so as in Ezra 3, they get back to Judah. They, they see the shambles of what they once knew as Jerusalem. They go and they kind of settle in their own towns and kind of get things established. And then they come back to Jerusalem. They build an altar right there on the site of the old temple, the site of what would be known as Solomon's temple. And they had some sacrifices. And a few months later, they began to work on the temple as one community. They laid the foundation. And when they got the foundation done, there was this amazing celebration. And they were singing. And it says there was this mixture of singing and tears because there were some that still remembered the glory and the, the beauty of Solomon's temple, and they wept as they were getting started on the new temple. And others didn't ever see Solomon's temple, but they were excited to be doing what God wanted them to do. And, and in fact, Ezra says that the singing and the celebration was so great, it could be heard from miles around. It was a great start. The community came together. 
And immediately from the surrounding nations, there was opposition and the work stopped almost before it had gotten going. That was 536 BCE. Construction only stopped on the temple. Construction elsewhere went on. Just not the place they were told by God to gather first and establish their community worship. I don't know what was going through their mind. Maybe God wasn't big enough to stop the opposition. Maybe they just were too afraid to stand against it. But for 16 years, nothing happened on the temple. They drifted. When God is not a priority, it's very easy to drift. And so God appoints Haggai, his prophet, to speak to the drift, to speak to what had happened. And in the course of several months, we have Haggai speaking four times. And those speeches, those oracles are recorded in this book. And if I would summarize Haggai today, it would simply be, take time to recheck your priorities. In verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the first message is delivered. And he delivers that message at the beginning of the harvest, probably the end of our month of August. Uh, and, and harvest, I grew up in Kansas, as you know, harvest was an important time. The wheat harvest, I mean, everything was about the harvest. And so it's an important time. Harvest is a time of anticipation. I remember the farmers in my church as a kid growing up hoping that they would have a bumper crop so that they would have the, the money needed to, to really prepare for the next year. Because once you got done harvesting, you're preparing the fields and, and you're getting ready to plant and you're getting ready for the next year. It just keeps going. Harvest, the successful harvest, was a key to survival. And Haggai says this, listen to this, chapter 1 of Haggai, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say this time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, 
because of my house which remains in a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and everything else the ground produces on the people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Make sure your priorities are in line with God's. That's really the point that Haggai makes. That question should cause us to think about our own priorities. God says, why are you living in your paneled homes? I know in 2022, we look at paneling and we go, that is so 70s, okay? But, but in, in, in 520 BCE, a paneled home was a home of luxury. In other words, God is saying, why are you living in luxury while my house lies in ruins? A paneled home reflected a personal desire for wealth and for comfort. A paneled home spoke of individual ease and luxury. Here's what Haggai was pointing out. The people who had returned from captivity had put their own needs and their own comfort ahead of Worshiping God. My needs are first. My comfort is first. You see, God sent them back with a specific purpose. In fact, Cyrus, now we have Darius mentioned here, between when they left and this time when Haggai speaks, there's a change in rulership. Cyrus the Mede is no longer in charge. Now it's Darius. But, and so here they're back there and Haggai's saying, you came with letters from the emperor. You came with money. You came and had everything you needed. But they took an approach that said, you know, this is a little harder than we thought. You know, I don't like the threats from everybody else. You know, I think we'll just go build our houses and let, if we take care of our needs, then we'll be able to more specifically give our attention to God. In fact, Ezra 4.7 reads that they were authorized to purchase logs from Lebanon, as I've said. But look at Haggai 1.8. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. If they had already had the authority 16 years earlier to buy all the timber they needed, why is Haggai telling them to go do it again? One scholar, several scholars believe that it is very possible that they did order that timber from Lebanon, that they did have it brought, and that they decided to use it on their own homes first. So they've got to go back and do it again. Now, I don't know that's speculation, but it kind of makes sense. They repurposed God's commands to fit their needs. So I think when I see that, this helps me understand what God's saying to the prophet. The people kept saying, it's just not the right time. And they kept saying that for 16 years. Hey, are we going to go build the temple? Nah, it's just, it's got to wait for the right time. Got to wait for the right moment. Hey, we're going to do the temple? Yeah, not quite yet. I still got my rec room to do, you know, so we, we got to wait for the right time. The idea of a paneled home is an idea of self first. 
God's priority of worship had given way to a personal priority of comfort. I once called putting my comfort ahead of God's when I preached this passage many years ago, called it the paneled home syndrome, PHS. I often have to look at myself and say, do I have paneled home syndrome? You see, PHS is diagnosed not by what one says, but by one's actions. Now, I know I could give you a list of potential behaviors, and I have done that in the past, but so often I find when I hear a list of behaviors, I make it a checklist. Oh, I'm good there. I'm good there. I'm good there. So let me just leave you with a diagnostic question. If a person who did not know me or my background shadowed me for one week, would they conclude that my relationship with God through Jesus Christ expressed in my commitment to the larger Christian community was my first priority? So this person shadows me for a week. They don't know me. They don't know my background. They don't know that I was in church when I was seven days old. They don't know that I grew up in a pastor's home. They, they, they don't know that I, I've gone to Bible college and seminary. They don't know that I have a, a, a postgraduate degree. They don't know anything. They just know I'm Scott Howington. And they follow me around for a week. Now, I know for me that kind of breaks down because they would wonder, well, why are you going into that office here at this church every week? But let's say I have a a regular job. They don't know anything about me. And they just watch my life. They don't even ask me any questions. They're just watching how I live, how I work, how I interact with people. Would they know that my relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a priority? That my commitment to my local faith community is a priority? Would they know? You see, paneled home syndrome is concerned less about what God thinks and more about what meets one's personal needs and desires. And I would dare say, all of us struggle at one level or another with paneled home syndrome. God's answer, he repeats twice in chapter 2, or twice in chapter 1, and then three more times in chapter 2. We find it in 1.5. God says, give careful thought to your ways. He says that in 1.5. He says it again in 1.7. Give careful thought to your ways. In chapter 2, verses 15 and 18, and twice in 18, actually, he says, give careful thought. The idea is think deeply about your path. Think deeply about your conduct. How I live my life is a more accurate reflector of my priorities than what I say about my life. And when you and I get our priorities mixed up, when I put me ahead of God, what I find is a life of spiritual dissatisfaction, spiritual unproductivity, and spiritual isolation. Verses 5 and 6 are all expressions of that truth. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have you fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. The, the 
they, they said nothing was satisfying. Do not hear me say, please do not hear me say that when I put God first, then I will automatically have a life of wealth and luxury. I am not saying that. Nowhere could you find that promised in God's word. What I am saying is that when God is my priority, then I see the rest of my life in proper perspective. I learn to trust God. I learn the secret of contentment. I learn the secret of being satisfied with what God's given me. I discover God's wisdom in calling me into a community of faith to worship together. God says your harvest isn't enough. You're not satisfied. And God says, as long as you, people here in Judah, as long as you, people who hear my voice, put your priorities of self-conduct and or self-comfort and self-satisfaction and self-indulgence above his priority of worship in community, you'll be empty. God says, when you fail to follow my ways, I won't fully bless your efforts. You see, when God is second or third or fourth on my priority list, I find that I'm not satisfied. And you know, we live in a culture that says that's exactly right. That's why you need to consume more. That's why you need to buy more. That's why the computer you bought yesterday is going to be out of date next week. And you need to buy the newest, the latest, the greatest. It's not good enough to have an iPhone. You need an iPhone 14 Pro. You know, and it just goes on and on and on. And God says, you know what? There's nothing inherently wrong with that unless it becomes your priority. Verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1 give us the only right response to God because there's really only one right response to God. There are many responses you can have to the message of God. You see, sometimes you hear the message of God and you get angry at the messenger. Sometimes you hear the message of God and you just decide to ignore it. Sometimes you hear the message of God and whoever's closest to you, you know, you kind of nudge them, right? Uh, I, I reminded somebody the other day, I see everything. So I, I've every now and seen a nudge, you know, like, hey, I think this is for you. You know, we do that. We do that. But the only right response is to look at my life and say, God, where do I need to change so that I can be obedient to you? Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord God Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Sixteen years after they came, they got together and said, we've got to do this. The people feared the Lord. And God responded. When I respond to God, God responds to me. I am with you. That's what God says. What a great response. I am with you. Don't you just love that? You know, you've been there. 
feeling alone and someone comes up and says, I'm with you. Let's do this together. But I want you to notice something. That's not a singular you in Haggai. It's a plural you. I'm with all y'all. It's a plural you. Because we have to realize that we too quickly individualize Scripture. God oftentimes is speaking to the community. So it's, it's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you, remnant. I'm with you, church. I'm with you. And, and, and the people as a collective whole say, God's with us. It's a community reality. It does not take away from the fact that God does care about us individually, but what it does mean is he starts in the community of faith because as individuals we make up the faith community. God worked through the leadership. He worked through the people, and they began rebuilding the temple again. You see, when you and I live with God as our priority, when we live in obedience to the Word of God, we get a keen sense of his presence, of his withness, of his being with us. And that is shown oftentimes by our willingness to roll up our sleeves and say, God, I will do whatever you're putting before me as an individual to do. We will do as a community of faith what you're putting before us to do. When God's people stepped out in obedience, it only took 24 days for them to get ready and organize because they did it. They reprioritized. About a month later, old Haggai comes around again. Now, the work had been going on and it had not been easy. One of the problems had been, as I said, there were some who remembered Solomon's temple. And if you go back into uh, 1 Kings and you start reading about Solomon's temple, it was stupid. It was amazing. And there was gold and there was beauty and all beautiful, made to honor God. It was amazing. And they heard that. And they're looking at what they're able to do and they're going, oh, this isn't really right. This, this, can God really be happy with this? We're just, this is so small. It, it, there's, not a, there's not enough gold. There, it's just not, it's not the way it used to be. It's not the way it was. And they're beginning to wonder if it's worth, worth it all. I wish we could just go back to the good old days. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Haggai basically says this. Let the past be the past. The language is present tense, right? Uh, pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and through the remnant of the people, and ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations and what is by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God says, I'm with you. Stop pining for the past. I'm with you. Do what I've told you to do now. I'm with you and I'm going to fill this temple with my glory and it'll be greater than that great temple that you're pining for because it's a now thing. Someone once said, God is contemporary. He's into the present. Boy, I need that message today. Do you? We can't go back to yesterday. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We need to do all we can do for God now this is the time into which God has called us. God says, do not fear. Some of us don't ever want anything to change. We want everything to be like it was because we say we're afraid of change. You see, it's comfortable just to keep things the way they always were. God says, don't fear, people of Judah. Let that past temple be the past. Let that past ministry be the past. Let those past memories be sweet, but leave them in the past. And God, in, in this passage, encourages people with two realities. The first reality is, I'm sufficient. God says, the gold and the silver, they're all mine. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's a statement of sufficiency, God says, I'm going to do everything that is necessary to see to it that my will is done because I am enough. I am sufficient. Wow. Do we need that here? God is sufficient for Pleasant Hill Community Church. See, when we turn and have this long gaze at the past, it hinders the work of the present. None of you drive your vehicle by staring into the rearview mirror. You'll do it once. None of you do. We drive looking out. When I was a kid in driver's ed, they said, get the big picture. It was the idea. You don't even look just at the, the front bumper of your car. You're looking out. You're looking at the road. You're seeing what's coming. A long-lasting gaze hinders the work of the present. And when you and I use the past to hinder the work of the present, we're saying God's not enough. God says the second thing. He's able. He's sufficient. He's able. God said, I once filled that temple with my glory. You can read about it in 1 Kings. I once filled my te that temple. And that was an amazing time. But let me tell you something. That wasn't like I didn't use up all my glory then. That wasn't like, okay, glory's done. I don't have any left. No. The glory in this temple is even going to be greater than what you saw then. You see, God is not about going backwards i heard a was was shared a, a great story years ago it was a, a local church 
here in the Midwest, and there was a young lady in her teens who befriended an older lady in her 80s, and they became prayer partners. And one day they were talking about their church and their church where they were going through some new changes, some new things coming along. And as you can imagine, the young lady in her teens was just like geeked about this. It was like, yeah, this is great. I love it. And the wiser older lady was supportive. In fact, she made a statement similar to this. And I know because she made it to my wife and me. I may not understand all the changes, but I know my time on this earth is short, and I believe we need to focus on reaching future generations for Jesus. And if these changes will make that happen, then I am all for them, because I trust my God, and I trust our leadership. You see, that's a lady who had learned through some very difficult times that God is sufficient. That's a lady who had learned through some very difficult times that God is able. And she had made a decision that she was going to let the past be the past because she cared more about what God was doing now than about what she had seen happen in the past. She cared about God more than her personal comfort zone. She had learned to reprioritize. Three months later, Haggai gives his final message. It's in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and then kind of wraps up in chapter 2, verses 20 and following. And the simple message is this. It is always about the heart. Now, the first part of the message is very cryptic. In chapter 10, or chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, you have this stuff about him going to the priests and asking them, if I'm bringing a sacrifice and uh, I'm carrying the meat in the fold of my garment and the fold touches some of the sacrifices, the fold of my garment um, consecrated? And, and the answer is no, uh, that the fold of your garment isn't consecrated because it's not set aside, it's not holy, it's the, it's the sacrifice that's holy. But on the other hand, if you go and you touch a dead body, according to the law in Leviticus, if you touch a dead body, you are defiled, and, and you can't, therefore, go and sacrifice until you've gone through some rituals. And Haggai says in verse 14, that's what it, how it is with this people in my nation. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And he says, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. And he gives all this stuff about what they came and the, 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 the idea that God struck the work of their hands and, and, and all. And he says, you got to give careful thought, give careful thought, give careful thought, because I will one day bless you. What is going on with all of that? The point is, Holiness can't be transferred from one person to another. We, we pursue God personally in holiness. We pursue God collectively. But it's interesting, uncleanness is actually more contagious than holiness. Let me, let me give you a really simple illustration. If my wife is laying there in bed and she's got this really bad cold, my walking up to her and going, 
I'm breathing health on you because I don't have a cold and you do. So let me just give my health to you. Not only might she smack me, I mean, no, playfully. She'd say, go away. But you know what? If I have a, a cold and I grab my wife and I give her a kiss, I might give her my cold. Isn't it wild? You don't pass along health, but you can pass along unhealthiness. And God, in this situation, the temple is still not built. There's just an altar. They're still clearing. They're still working on it. It's going slow. And God says, you're just obeying me partially. And as long as you are satisfied with partial obedience, you won't have my complete blessing. Full obedience to whatever God asks is, and the authority of God places in your life begins with the heart. We used to say this to our kids. They hated it. I think I've heard it come out of their mouths, though. But they hated it at the time. We would say to them, delayed obedience is paramount to disobedience. You know, when I say go clean your room, it's been my standard illustration lately. It's the only one I can think of off the fly. When I say clean your room, that means now. That doesn't mean next week. That means now. Delayed obedience is paramount to disobedience. Delaying, saying it's not the time. And so the people of God, they were getting started to work, but God said, you haven't fully obeyed. And until you fully obey, until you change your heart and really embrace what I'm telling you to do, you're not going to get my full blessing. Now here's what God does. God in His grace does everything he can to get our attention. He allows difficulties and struggles and trials and even conflicts to come into our lives. And he told the people, I've done this. That's, that's 15 through uh, 19 about, you know, uh, the wine vat not being enough. And I struck the work of your hands with blight and mildew. I did all of this so that you would stop and return to me so that you would realize I need to put God first. The thing is, when we have trials and temptations in our lives, and, and here's the difference. The difference between a trial and a temptation is my response. You see, when I face a difficult time and it drives me to my knees and saying, God, where do I need to change? How do I need to come in line with you? I see that as a trial. But when I come into a difficult time and it drives me to my own wits, saying, okay, i got to work hard to make the pain go away. Uh, I've got to push for my priorities. I've got to plan my work and work my plan and get through this. And I begin to get bitter because I've left God out of the equation. The people in Haggai's day needed to come back to one basic fact, and it's a basic fact that you and I need to come to as well, and that is it's always about God or more Specifically, it's always about my heart. When I put God first in my heart, it flows through in my actions. And the response is, I realize the presence of God with me. One final thing. Haggai has a little word for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a leader who did obey. And Haggai says to Zerubbabel, the glory will always be God's. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, 
governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. He had been placed there by uh, Cyrus and eventually was under answer to Darius. And God's message was, Zerubbabel, you come from the Davidic line. Zerubbabel was from the generation of David that years before from a king called Jeconiah had been cursed. But when they went into captivity, God removed the curse and and Zerubbabel's obedience to God had been part of that. God promises one day, Zerubbabel, I'm going to overthrow everything. And you're going to be like my signet ring. The signet ring was very important. It was, in essence, the signature of the king. And the king had that big old signet ring. And when he signed a decree and they dropped a blob of wax on it, and he, boom, put his signature. That was his signature. Nobody else had the king's signet ring. And that meant it would happen. And by calling Zerubbabel his signet ring, he's letting him know that you have been chosen of God and that the promises of David to the fact that a Messiah is coming through the line of David are going to come true. Can you imagine how encouraging that must have been to Zerubbabel to know that God's plan was going to come through him? You see, in Jeremiah 22, 24, God told his ancestor, Jeconiah, if you were the signet ring on God's finger... I'd pull it off. By the way, fast forward just a minute. Take your Bibles and flip over just a few pages to Matthew chapter 1. See, sometimes we have to look and see, did God do it? Pick it up in verse 12 of Matthew 1. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil. Sheatil, the brother of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ehud. Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, da 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 da, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. The line of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, ran directly through Zerubbabel, the signet ring. Joseph was royalty by lineage. And by law, Jesus, as his adopted son, was royalty. God fulfilled his promises. You see, the overarching point of this whole section is the glory will always be God's. Here's the bottom line. When I recheck my priorities and I put God first, I find that there's ups and downs, there's difficulties and struggles. I find I'm walking with God and He with me in the midst of them, and I find a depth of satisfaction that can barely be described. So on that night, in September of 1980, in Green Lake, Wisconsin, I held two slips of paper in my hand. And eventually the speaker said, Toss your final slip of paper on the floor. Now, I knew it was an experiment. I struggled, literally struggled. I sat there 
and stared at those two slips of paper. Because I knew that by acting, I was actually saying to God what was important to me. As I held the last slip of paper in my hand, with the word God on it, I knew God was with me. And I knew God wanted his best for my life. And you know what? I was accept- I Actually, Charlene accepted the ring that I bought for her. That was a good thing. And I was accepted at Grace Theological Seminary. And I didn't get the job at WRSW. I was second in line, they told me. I think that was just corporate speak. Uh, and yet, God provided in ways that we couldn't have imagined. And, and, you know, my life since that point in time has not been straight line. I've stumbled, I've staggered, I've zigged, I've zagged. But I know God's been there, even in my failures. And, you know, as, as we became a couple, Charlene and I discovered the immense value of being in a faith community. We do not have the time for me to list the names of the many people who became our brothers and sisters in Christ, some who we, we have contact with today we love dearly, who spoke truth into our lives, who spoke encouragement into our lives. We needed our faith community. We needed our church family. And when we had children, we needed them even more. Those people became our allies and our encouragers. And it started when we put God first. Give careful thought to your ways, individually, and in your place in the faith community. Father, thank you for guys like Haggai who spoke truth. Thank you for them, him willing to stand up when people were in their paneled homes and to challenge them because your word said to do that. Lord, help us to just give careful thought to our ways. If we do nothing else from today's sermon, may we give careful thought to our ways. And may we listen to you as you challenge us to recheck our priorities. In Jesus' name.